Hi there, welcome to the program. It's Thursday on Chin 97.9. It is uh, the 9th of August, and this means uh, the fact that it's Thursday, it's time for another ADR program with uh, Ernie Tannis, who, uh, this is, it's been a long time since you and I actually sat in the same studio together. It's been a while. Well, when you're not here in flesh, you're here in spirit, but the Chin family takes care of us here, including the Valdo behind us here, and he said yeah. this morning, Ernie, is there a phone call today? And I said, is that God speaking? <laughs> well, we're going to be speaking about the nature of God. And, yeah. you know, this is, uh, this is going to be a wonderful program. And uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to introduce our guest who's making a return visit to our studio here at Chin Radio. Indeed, you have a good memory, uh, Gary. Don't let anyone doubt that. Uh, and uh, it is called The Nature of God. Um, how does what most believe or say they believe or some do not believe about God govern how we treat each other? Now, that's probably one of the most important questions today. And you're right, Gary. Uh, Dr. Victor Shepard, uh, welcome back. Uh, can I call you Victor? Or? Of course, of course. Good to be here once again, Ernie. Great to see you again. I could say, why should I call you Victory? Then I had why to Victor. It's Victory, right? So that's what it is. And I remember, he remembered me saying last time I had goosebumps after we spoke. And now I already have shivers because we spoke last night. It was a wonderful uh, preparation. This is show number 132, Gary. I see that. And he was a guest on show number 65 the last Thursday of April 2005. And the topic then was about the history of religion and what happened in Spain with the explosion of the Jews and Muslims and what that lesson was for history. Uh-huh. So we're going to do a follow-up today on this very, very important topic. If I could take just a couple minutes to do a brief background again about uh, our great guest, Victor Shepard, and a little bit of a context for some references I'd like to make. He's a professor of um, theology and adjunct professor at the University of Toronto. He's done many books. In fact, I have a book in front of me called... Uh, do you love me? And other questions that Jesus asked. So as the question is, do you love me? That's probably the most important question anybody wants to know. How well have you loved? And when you pass, how well did you love? Is what people remember. Um, in addition to the uh, the books he's written and the uh, uh, preaching he does, he's been an expert witness in many cases. Um, people can visit his website. What is it again? Uh, www.victorshepherd.on.ca And uh, my mentor here, Gary, is, uh, you know, told me precious minutes so people can find out more about you there. Um, we have had on this show, as you know, uh, Victor, uh, last December 31st, we had um, Pastor Al McMillan. Thanks to Pastor Al, the Brotherwood Community Church of the Nazarene. We met, and you'll be doing a sermon there this Sunday. That's great. And um, he was on a panel with an imam and a rabbi and Paul Bendis, who's been on the show on many times. Uh, he's with the Humanist Association, and we had former Mayor Bob Shirelli. I saw him last night, by the way, at the Peace Camp celebration. For Doesn't the he look uh, well relaxed? Oh, he is, huh? yeah. <laughs> Did you see? Oh, he's really feeling, looking yeah. good. He came over and said hello, and he's doing some great stuff, and he was on because of the interfaith um, section, and it was about finding common values, and um, a number of people I bumped into, I want to mention, uh, you know, Ned Selhani, he's retired, and he's uh, told me every Thursday he starts 11, gets ready for the show. It's really nice to hear. Um, another person that uh, has been on the show will be on Case Gannon's show tomorrow on uh-huh. cultural dialogue. Dialogue with diversity. diversity about the challenge of facing immigrant is uh, right. Eli Nizrella, who's written a couple articles in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Sun. One of them in the Globe called Have My People Call Your Deity. Listening to children's demands takes a special talent. Wear a Plato and Kant when you need them. And he refers to three authors. Sam Harris, Letter to a Christian Nation, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Christopher Hitchens, and God is Not Great, 
how religion poisons everything. And with all my friends, whatever they say they are, everyone's in conversation with God as far as I can see it. And some of the best ones who have it are <clears throat> people who call themselves agnostics or atheists or whatever, but um, they have good value. So I'm going to want to turn it over to Victor Shepard now. We're going to talk about the grand theme of the nature of God and, and people saying, well, religion causes conflict. And in your book, uh, you do mention the truth is wherever Jesus went, there was conflict. And to understand the shalom of God, uh, you have to have disruption. So I'm going to that's my opening. And Victor, you can uh, maybe talk about this grand theme that is so important to everyone that people are listening into today. I want to say how happy I am to be here, Ernie, once again, and to have an opportunity to speak to this uh, wonderful topic. I found among my first-year students in theology, many students using the term the Almighty as a circumlocution for God. The Almighty spoke or the Almighty acted or the Almighty did this or that. And I asked my students, how many times in Scripture does the expression the Almighty occur? Well, it occurs very infrequently. It occurs only on the margin of Scripture. Next question. If it occurs only on the margin of Scripture, why do you use it as the commonest circumlocution for God? I point out to my students that I'm not particularly fond of the term the Almighty. I think that to be humanly possessed with the Almighty is also to want to render ourselves almighty in some respects, and therein uh, lies too many of the world's problems. I've also asked my students in my first year of theology, somewhat waggishly, How many times in John Calvin's book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin, of course, is the major progenitor in many respects of the Protestant tradition. How many times in Calvin's major book, 2,000 pages long, does Calvin speak of the sovereignty of God? And I ask this because uh, many students speak of the sovereignty of God as if uh, sovereignty characterized God. Well, the little joke, of course, I play on the students is, Calvin never speaks in the Institutes of the Sovereignty of God. He'll speak of the beauty of God, the grandeur of God, the majesty of God, but never the sovereignty of God. Next question. If the progenitor of the Reformed tradition doesn't speak like this, why do we, his brother, his children, uh, often speak of little else but the sovereignty of God? I then point out to my students that I think that um, very often Protestants came to speak of the sovereignty of God when, in certain areas of Europe, they became politically, militarily, socially, economically ascendant themselves, thinking themselves to be, and in fact they were, sovereign in so many respects of life. They read their understanding of sovereignty or superiority back into the doctrine of God and then read it back out of the doctrine of God, thereby reinforcing their social ascendancy. At this point in the class, students are getting nervous. Someone puts up his or her hand and says, but isn't God sovereign after all? And I point out, sure, if the God who isn't sovereign isn't God. Well, isn't he in control? Oh, I say, just a minute now. To be sovereign is one thing. To be in control is something else. Then very quickly, I say to the students, bear in mind that according to the Christian understanding of God, God acts most characteristically. He loves. He acts most effectively, almightily, if you will, when he reconciles a wayward world to himself. He does both of this, all of this, in the cross. And at the cross, surely God renounced control. 
In other words, he acts most effectively and most characteristically when, from a human perspective, he appears to be most helpless. Now, of course, we fear appearing helpless. We dread it because it entails loss of face. But according to our understanding of God, God does his mightiest work precisely where, from a human perspective, he's renounced control. Well, if, you know, when people um, uh, talk about who's in control, let go and let God, so to speak, and you have very uh, thoughtful people like uh, Eli and, and Paul Bendis and, and writing articles like this in terms of how religion manipulates. And I remember that phrase, will be to the person who violates the law of God, but will be the person who violates the law of God in the name of God. Uh, the saying it's religion that causes a problem. I wonder if you might want to address some of the things that uh, Eli puts in his article because it does speak to a very important group of people who, and the ones I know that I've mentioned and others, are very value-based people. We've had a show here, Gary, with uh, atheists and agnostics, whatever. They're, they're as caring or as value-based as anybody, and more so than some. How would you address that constituency of thinkers when they say that they're not um, religious and that religion is the cause of all problems? I'm always amused in some respect in that atheism, of course, is a religious expression. Any sociologist can tell you that, never mind a philosopher, that atheism is a faith commitment of sorts which cannot be demonstrated, that is to say, which can't be proved conclusively in terms of evidence. Therefore, the atheist is as much a believer, as it were, as is the Christian or the Jewish person. It's just that the deity he claims not to believe in is nonetheless very often um, his preoccupation. I'm amused at this all the time, of course. I'm uh, taken up with the uh, Richard Dawkins book, The God Delusion, Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I wouldn't say that religion poisons everything, but of course it has the capacity to poison a great deal. And uh, from time to time people have uh, said to me, you know, don't you think there is a dark current to this or that religious expression, naming some non-Christian religious expression? And I say, well, of course there is. But as a Christian, I would never deny for a minute that there has also been a dark current, and there are dark currents in the Christian understanding. When my students raise the question with me, but isn't God in control if he's sovereign? I say to them, who was in control at Auschwitz? Mm -hmm. Manifestly, we were, and that's just the problem. God is in control, but we have, God is sovereign rather, we happen to be in control. We were in control at Auschwitz. The question of sovereignty, of course, has to do with power. Most people think that power is simply the capacity to coerce. That's an ersatz form of power, illegitimate form of power. Genuine power is the capacity to achieve purpose. Next question, what is God's purpose? God's purpose is a people who love him and obey him. How does he achieve it? He achieves that purpose, a people who love him and obey him supremely through the cross, precisely where he renounced control. I've been a pastor for 37 years, and of course I have had thousands of pastoral issues brought before me, and I have learned that nearly all situations of human dysfunction boil down to control issues. Mm -hmm. We are control freaks. And I think that one reason we are control freaks is that loss of face for us spells loss of identity. Mm. Whereas the face that God lost at the cross never threatens his identity for the simple reason, Ernie, he's far more secure than you are. Mm. 
Therefore, he can lose face without having to exercise control or coercion in order to try to save face. Most human beings can't do that. You don't have a control problem, do you, Gary? I don't think so. I, I, <laughs> I don't believe I do. But there is. But any time you see anything going on there, that that's why I love this uh, the distinction between the control and the sovereignty issue when we... Look at say, the Abrahamic faith, uh, Victor, and um, my wife, Yumna, she's uh, the Muslim faith. I've come to um, uh, understand those teachings and um, embrace so much of the value. And then, of course, the name Yumna means gift from God. And you mentioned in the Hebrew. Yohan, John Yohan, the Baptist. Yeah. Yohan means gift, gift of, of God. God. Yes. So that is a gift. But we all have many gifts from a spirit. I mean, even some uh, atheists or agnostics believe some of them, some of them uh, believe in, they say, spirituality. Uh, some people say they're deists and not atheists. Um, I'm just trying to sort of sort all that out. And when, when Eli says, where is Plato and Kant when you need them? Uh, I wonder what answer. I mean, there's a question you would give to that. And um, the question that um, he said his daughter asked, what all our children ask is, how do you connect with God? And we'll talk about that before this segment's over. But how would you answer that question uh, theologically, in, in in plain language terms, where are Pla- a Plato and Kant when you need them? Well, he's, he says, where are Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Voltaire, and Hegel, not to mention current skeptics such as Sam Harris and so on? Well, of course they are where they always are. They're ready to hand. I want to point out, however, that Plant, Plato, Kant, Hegel, and so on are what we call in philosophy metaphysicians. Metaphysics is that branch of philosophy which uh, tries to grasp rationally reality as a whole. When we try to grasp reality as a whole rationally, we, ne- never, we obviously try to include everything in it that we can think of. That happens to include evil. Now, as soon as you render evil part of your philosophical system, you denature it as evil. You, you end up uh, arguing at some level for the necessity of evil. Evil then becomes a condition of the good or a good in disguise or a way to the good or a latent good. As soon as evil is spoken of in terms of any good at all, it loses its force as evil. Therefore, I'm not uh, in a hurry to find Plato or Aristotle or Kant or Hegel if the price of doing that is to deny that evil which produces such terrific suffering for so many people um, throughout the world. My former philosophy professor, world-class thinker, Rabbi Emil Fackenheim, used to say to me, Islam and Christianity claim to be daughters of the Jewish faith. If this is the case... Why are, the, why are the daughters frequently so hostile to their mother? <laughs> I think that's a very good question. In the Middle Ages, the church very often attempted to exercise control by coercing the Jewish people into the church or into some kind of uh, Christian conformity. Fackenheim mentioned to me that the United States of America is Mecca for so many Jewish people because the United States of America has a history so recent that it has no medieval tradition. And for the Jewish people, the Middle Ages was one long, dark, endless night. Now, it so happens that until 1948, with the birth of the nation of Israel, the state of Israel, the Jewish people historically received far, far better treatment at the hands of Muslims than they received at the hands of Christians. And all of this comes back to me as to the issue of 
control. What do we understand by God's power? What is the nature of that power? If we think that God's power or sovereignty is the capacity to coerce, we who name the name of God ourselves will thereby legitimate our depraved desire to coerce. In other words, we always conform ourselves to the God we believe in. On the other hand, if we believe that God defines himself at the cross where he acts characteristically and effectively precisely at the moment of his greatest vulnerability, we will learn to embrace a similar vulnerability ourselves and trust God to render it effective. Well, you know, when you, um, you know, picking up on that theme about um, almost that humility towards um, these notions, and I think of that quote by Shakespeare that's coming to me, if religious you know, cannons be cruel, what should war be? And the general population world are seeing all of this, what they call evilness. And I had asked you um, last night about a movement in some parts of Islam that says the uh, Islam needs a reformation, much like Martin Luther in the Christian history. And we need that kind of reformation. And you talked about some really interesting things about even in the names of these reformation if the product is still evil, then we have to watch ourselves. So I'm just wondering, if people are looking around for the changes, could you talk a little bit about that that movement? Because there's a lot of literature around that, about that Reformation and how that left us in today's uh, church. I mean, I understand there's like, I don't know, 40-some thousand different churches, but could you speak to that, that idea about the Reformation being needed? Even non-Protestant Christians today, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, recognize that the church needed reforming in the 16th century. A major reformer, of course, Martin Luther, he maintained that when the church was reformed in doctrine and reformed in uh, uh, ethics, in morals, and reformed institutionally, that uh, all would be well. What he lost sight of, perhaps we shouldn't say he lost sight of it, he just didn't live long enough to see it, was that the reforms that he sought were as readily undone 100 years after his death as the new Protestant church came to exemplify the the same sort of abuses Mm. as that which it was attempting to correct. I I often uh, tell my students, not to horrify them, but just to remind them about this, that Hermann Goering, who was one of Hitler's right-hand men, Hermann Goering was married in a Lutheran church whose communion table was draped in the swastika. Mm. In other words, we can't simply say, oh, Lutheranism is an improvement because it's an expression of the Reformation. That which was reformed in the 16th century has to be reformed all the time or else you just get same old same old same old Mm. in a new vocabulary therefore the the reform within islam that you speak of will have to be an ongoing reform or no great purpose is served well um there's been a great purpose served in this first segment i want to have one final question if we could we'll go to a break is um when you use the word like my cousin mike was talking about eli's article about uh you know how do you call your deity will you pray Right, it seems simple. The word didn't appear there. I think you have a, a thought on this, but I thought of the word "pray," P-R-E-Y, that you know people pray on each other or persecute each other, and it's sort of a interesting way of looking at it because you can manipulate a great teaching mm-hmm. and pray on people based on it instead of pray 
in humility, but do you see anything about the idea of praying in this article, Have My People Call Your Deity? I'm intrigued by the very last paragraph that Eli has written. He's talking about his daughter and the questions his daughter asks on religious themes. And he says in his last paragraph, This time I could only say to myself silently, Oh God, you help me. Now, I'm sure he means it waggishly. Someone give me whatever help is available. But of course, when he says, Oh God, you help me, he is left-handedly praying himself (laughs) to the deity concerning whom he's not particularly certain. I think this is important. My old uh, philosophy friend again, Emil Fackenheim, used to say, Prayer is the quintessential human act. We are never as profoundly human as when we pray. That which renders us authentically human is the fact that God speaks to us, and when God speaks to us, he renders us able to respond. God's addressing us makes us response-able, and because we are response-able, we are response-able to him. In other words, when we pray, we are most authentically human. Eli had it right, even if accidentally. Well, EDR does mean a deified resolution. There you go, Chin Radio in Ottawa 97.9. Our special guest, uh, along with our co-host Ernie Tannis, is Dr. Victor Shepard. Our topic today is the nature of God, and uh, we will uh, take a brief break, and we'll be back. And uh, I want to, uh, if I may, when we do return, I have a question about prayer, and it just seems to me it, in a lot of cases it's always used as a last resort when people are up against the wall. We'll be back after this. Africa. Africa. Asia. Europe. And the Americas. Spanning five continents of the globe and over 20 languages, we are Ottawa's multicultural voice. Chin Radio, 97.9 FM, CJLL. Chin Radio invites you to celebrate Odyssey Theatre's 22nd season Under the Stars at Strathcona Park, July 26th to August 26th. Enjoy Carlo Goldoni's masterpiece, A Curious Mishap. Enjoy this wonderful presentation Tuesday through Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. and Sunday matinees at 3. There are also specially adapted youth matinees at 1. For ticket information, call Odyssey Theatre at 613-232-8407. What do a baby and a smoke alarm have in common? (laughs) They both make a loud noise when they want your attention. And you have to change both of them regularly. Change the batteries in your smoke alarms once a year and test all your alarms monthly to make sure they're working. Baby them. And they could save your life. You must have working smoke alarms on every story of your home and outside all sleeping areas. It's the law. Discover the Orient through CRI. China Radio International. China Radio International provides one full hour of the latest news, current affairs, and features on politics, economy, culture, tourism, science, and technology, all in English. Satisfy your curiosity on the Eastern world. Tune in to CRI seven nights a week from 6 to 7 p.m. on CJLL, your multicultural radio station, Chin Radio 97.9. This is Chin Radio, celebrating the many voices and cultures of Canada, 97.9. 
You're listening to Chin in Ottawa 97.9 and uh, also uh, via the internet at www.chinradio.com and we're happy that you're able to spend some time with us and I'm delighted that uh, Dr. Victor Shepherd has uh, paid us a return visit to our ADR program. Heard each and every Thursday with Ernie Tannis and his uh, special guests week in and week out. And uh, I know, Ernie, you have a special program lined up uh, for next week, which we, will, uh, we yes. can chat about briefly towards the end of the show. But sure. uh, I, I, I pose the question to, uh, to Ernie and to Dr. Shepard, and uh, it seems that uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, as I mentioned, uh, uh, people who rarely practice religion, uh, when they're in times of trouble, all of a sudden they start to pray to God, and they're saying, "God, where are you now? I need your help." You know, mm. uh, how do you how do you address something like that? A question like that. I can't be too hard on people who, in moments of uh, extreme anxiety or pain, uh, cry out to the God they haven't heretofore believed in. On the one hand, it appears to be any port in a storm. What have we got to lose? On the other hand, as a pastor, I have seen how atrociously people suffer, and I can't fault them for that at all. Mm-hmm. At the same time, at the same time, we have to understand that the God whom they are crying out to, whom they have neglected throughout their lives, has never neglected them. It is the case that that God is ceaselessly involved in the life of every human being. Our Israelite friends are right when they say that, of course, God acted in, in, a, in a way definitively to bring them out of, out of slavery in Egypt, the root event in Israel, and then, and then uh, addressed them at the Red Sea. But the prophet Amos says not only did God, did God bring Israel up out of Egypt, God also brought the Philistines up out of Kaftor and the Syrians out of Ker, Amos 9.7. In other words, God is ceaselessly involved in the lives of the nations at all times and ceaselessly involved in the lives of every human individual at all times. This isn't to say that everybody knows it, is aware of it, or even welcomes it. But it is to say that it is the truth of everybody's existence. The person then who cries out to God in a moment of anguish might do well to cry out again and listen this time. You know, we have uh, uh, Gary's questions that often brings it down to a, like a common denominator. Um, I remember, if I could just share briefly, the morning I found out my uh, wife Mary may her uh, may her memory be eternal passed away at the hospital the first thing i when i look back i I remember collapsing and the first thing that came to me is where's god like i felt very dark very and i I remember i met i talked to a priest years ago and after 20 30 years of priesthood he said he was electrocuted he thought he was going to die and then he said now i'll know for sure he didn't know he even had such doubt and even in the scripture when um it's reported to jesus to have said my god my god why hast thou forsaken me which is a verse verse of psalm 22 which is about what you explained to me last night which was so amazing because i think of my sister-in-law may who teaches that keeping your faith in suffering is that the common denominator of all human beings is suffering which is supposed to lead to character and, and and hope and faith can we maybe talk about that common denominator of the human family, which is suffering, and the role it plays in this important question of the nature of God, no matter how one perceives that. With respect to the role of suffering in the nature of God, at one point in my life, I thought that I would gather together Islamic and Jewish and Christian friends in the city of Mississauga, and we would have a three-way conversation about uh, our faith commitments and then what we understood by God, and I found it never worked because... It was too frontal. It was too confrontational. However much we wanted to soften it, 
and it was the religious issues that were dividing us, and here we were trying to address them frontally in a way of finding a commonality. What I have since come to see is that what binds us humanly isn't uh, diverse religious expressions, it's rather our suffering. People suffer and suffer relentlessly, and it's the commonality of our suffering that is the commonality of our um, humanness. Now, you mentioned a minute ago, Ernie, that the, you, you had an oblique reference there to Romans 5, 1 to 5, where Paul says that suffering produces patience, patience produces endurance, endurance and so on, character, hope and whatnot. Paul hopes that that's what it's going to produce, but it doesn't always. Sometimes suffering renders people bitter. People renders people nasty. Suffering very often will render people cruel. And therefore, uh, we can't simply say that... Uh, see, if, if, if suffering invariably rendered people uh, uh, possessed of a better character, we'd be back to the old issue of saying that suffering is a latent good. Mm-hmm. And thereby, we would be legitimating evil and therein legitimating our evil treatment of people. This we must never, ever, ever do. When Jesus cries in Gethsemane, or in the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people have said to me, oh, he felt forsaken. And I say to them, well, yes, plainly, he felt forsaken, or he wouldn't have uttered it. But he felt forsaken only because he was forsaken. In that moment, what we call in the Christian tradition, the dereliction. Jesus was profoundly forsaken by his father, but he was God-forsaken in that instance for the sake of the human creation everywhere with the result that because he was God-forsaken for our sakes, there is no human being anywhere in the world in any situation who is God-forsaken at any time. Now, if there is no human being who is God-forsaken regardless of her distress, anguish, or pain, It is an aspect of my witness that I not forsake her either. Mm -hmm. There's little point in my telling her, oh, you're not God forsaken. I know you feel like it, but you aren't. If in turn, I abandon her. Mm -hmm. The fact that God has not forsaken her means I ought not to forsake or abandon the suffering human being whose life intersects mine. So that leads me into another big question facing Every human being, every culture, every institution, I call it the B word, betrayal. Even with the story of Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus or in all the great teachings, whatever they are, in, I, th- I think, including Islam and Judaism, and there's all these other great teachings of Buddhism and Sikhs. and There's so many, but in the, all the histories, in every human, there's not a person you can't talk to that says, what hurts you the most is when you feel betrayed. And I'm wondering when the, because we talked uh, about betrayal and about capital punishment and um, that idea of betrayal in terms of how we coexist, try to avoid conflict, deal with conflict. uh, That to me is a fundamental aspect of the human journey, no matter what category or stereotype you put in. How does the idea of betrayal fit into this discussion? I think you are right that the B word is an obscenity in that there is nothing worse. There's no worse human experience than being betrayed. It's one thing to be in pain. It's something else to have your pain caused by someone you trusted. Mm. It's one thing to be speared. It's something else to be speared by someone you loved. And therefore, I maintain that human relationships are sacrosanct. They have to be handled 
as if they were pure gold because, in fact, they are invaluable. I can think of few things worse than betrayal. And psychiatrists tell me there are few things worse in the formation of children than betrayal. I think that betrayal is one form of human suffering which is particularly iniquitous. And I think that we who maintain that God's covenant with us, his people, he will never violate, ought to ensure that we do not violate not only our covenant with him, but we do not violate our assorted covenants with other people. We are making covenants with... Covenant is just a biblical word for promise. We are making promises or covenants with people all the time. We ought to ensure that we do our utmost to keep the promises we make. You know, in the first show we had uh, that Gary sort of inspired us here, February 4th, 2005, the first show was on trust. And um, I know people sometimes don't betray your Lord, don't betray your value systems, even if you don't, you say you don't believe in something. So one of the big questions in the human family, because everyone's got their story of, everyone has a story, and everyone has a story of suffering and betrayal. Yes. How do you get past that? Then you get into this uh, realm of forgiveness, um, the role of forgiveness. I know the hardest thing is to forgive yourself, but how does one resolve these conflicts at this level, whatever one calls it, a spiritual level, a human level, but it's got to be based on some value system? Because unless we can get past that, understand suffering, and understand how we deal with betrayal, whether it's people feeling that you know the greatest hurt is you know cheating on your spouse or uh, people uh, stealing from someone, or as you say, you know, someone you care for comes back on you, and the world is full of broken promises. Tom Colosio said, everything's about exchange of promises. How do you get past that when a promise is broken, when there's betrayal? Realistically, I think that there are people whom we can forgive and we should forgive whom we're never going to be able to trust. I think that uh, our Lord is correct when he says we are to love our enemies. He never says we're to trust them. I think it would be stupid to pretend anything else. We are to trust those who have demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy. To trust those who aren't trustworthy isn't a sign of virtue. It's a sign of of common stupidity. But we are to love those. There are many people whom we can love and ought to love and will forgive whom we are going to be forever unable uh, to trust. At the same time... When people are very badly burned by betrayal, it's all the more important that they are part of a community. I'm speaking here of something very small. I don't mean a congregation of 300. I mean very small, a handful of people um, whom they can trust as a way of healing a heart that has been savaged by betrayal. Mm. And for that reason, we ought always to pledge ourselves to people who have been betrayed and ensure that we do not betray them, but rather they come to see that in us there is a human instance of promise-keeping. Well, when uh, people listening can refer, relate to this, you know that phrase, um, if, you, if I let you hurt, hurt me, shame on you. But if it happens again, shame on me. Mm-hmm. And there's not a person listening that doesn't have that in their life, someone that's hurt them, and you know that expression we talked about that I'm told by my friends in Aquasasi, I don't really get it right, is turn the other cheek. That great teaching, what does that mean? Like how do you, how do you put these uh, principles into daily life, whether it's in your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, and your global community with these, with, with these ideas that are manifested through all the teachings? How does that work? A minute ago you mentioned the uh, little saying that the f- 
if you hurt me, shame on you. But if you do it a second time, shame, shame on, on me. me. Well, of course, what the, what that means is I may not be able to help. I may not be able to do anything about you having uh, speared me the first time. But if I invite it the second time, then I'm inviting victimization. I have somehow a victim yes. stamped on my forehead, and I may think that to be virtuous. It is not. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he means that we are not to retaliate. Retaliation, of course, only worsens the conflict until the conflict gets to the point where everybody is consumed by it. At the same time, when he says, turn the other cheek, he doesn't mean turn the other cheek because, in fact, you are possessed of so little ego strength, you can't do anything else anyway. You're a sucker. It's rather the only person who can profoundly turn the other cheek is the person who doesn't have to that the person who has sufficient ego strength that he can genuinely expose himself to someone who has hurt him without inviting victimization. Our Lord goes to the cross, but he says too, nobody lays, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Now, his detractors may think they are taking it from him, mm-hmm. but as a matter of fact... He is possessed of himself at all times, and he lays down his life. He is not a doormat. He does not have victim written all over, all over him and, and invites victimization. I think there's a terrific difference here. Very often, we look upon turning the other cheek as the only thing that the person of diminished ego strength can do, whereas, in fact, it requires no little ego strength in order to turn the other cheek. Well, if I could um, pick up on another word, which is probably rampant throughout the world, and which is sort of, to me, a full circle of this discussion before we complete the second segment, because we'll come back about a vision for the future, is if I say ADR can stand for a destructive revenge, okay? So when there is hurt or betrayal or suffering, and you have to choose where to go, so much of what we see in life at individual institution international level is that now we talked about that phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth which i always believe was misunderstood or misapplied but and revenge saith the lord is mine but how do people deal with that feeling of revenge and how what role does that play in the human condition and how do we deal with that i want to comment just for a minute on eye for eye and tooth for tooth many people think it gives us the right to retaliate you know you spear me, I have the right to, to spear you. Two things. In the Hebrew Bible, eye for eye, tooth for tooth means no more than eye for eye or tooth for tooth. In other words, punishment must never exceed the offense. If punishment ever exceeds the offense, then the situation is only worsened. In the same way, the Hebrew Bible speaks of the, um, speaks, says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul, of course, St. Paul picks this up in um, Romans 12 where he talks about forgiving those who have offended us when the hebrew bible says vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord it's not the case that you and i ernie are counseled to forswear seeking vengeance ourselves because we're gonna leave it in god's hands and he can do it worse and fix the person we don't like better than we could ever (laughs) fix them ourselves that's not the force of it the rather is when you and i are speared we lose all all objectivity all objectivity goes out the window and therefore, as soon as we are, uh, someone launches a canoe against us and it bumps us, we're going to mobilize a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier to sink the canoe. That's the nature of fallen human nature. It's rather the case that we are admonished to leave this whole situation to God, where his perspective isn't ours, 
where he is possessed of an ego strength that very often we lack and where he isn't bent on retaliation. Well, these are serious questions, Gary, but there is, God does have a sense of humor, which we're going to hear about in the third segment, uh, yeah. believe it or not. Chin Radio 97.9 ADR, and uh, we're uh, discussing the nature of God. You know, all this time I thought an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth originated uh, uh, from uh, uh, an optometrist and a dentist who shared the same office. Uh. <laughs> anyway, we'll be right back after this. They say music is the global language. Hi, my name is Thomas Radford, and every Sunday from midnight till one, I'll be exploring that idea on Culture Shock. It's a program that highlights the many sounds and voices being produced globally today. We play hip-hop, reggae, world beat. We have some interviews. We review foreign movies. Every week is something new. So tune in and get Culture Shock on Shin Radio 97.9. Experience Touche Restaurant Lounge, 87 Clarence Street in the heart of the Byward Market. Touche is the perfect place whether you're looking for a romantic dinner or to relax with friends. Delight your senses with mouth-watering cuisine, a stylish atmosphere, and exceptional service. Touche Restaurant Lounge, 87 Clarence Street, open every day from 11.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. Visit touchelounge.com. That's Touche Restaurant Lounge, 87 Clarence Street. Reward yourself. They told me that I was lazy, that I'd never amount to anything. Everything was confusing and frustrating. Then I found out I had a learning disability, that there are solutions and people who can help. The Learning Disabilities Association of Canada is dedicated to helping people with learning disabilities achieve their true potential in school, in the workplace, and in society. Visit our website at ldac.ca. This message from the Learning Disabilities Association of Canada and this station. Visit SuperX August 17th and 18th and presto, you're at a magic festival too. Magicians, illusionists, and sleight-of-hand artists will keep you spellbound with over 30 free magic shows and workshops a day. Each night, discover something mystical at the 7 o'clock finale show. Marvel at the artistry of magicians performing all over the grounds. Admission is free with SuperX, the Tamarack Homes Capital Magic Festival, supported by the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and Celebrate Ontario is spellbinding. Visit Ottawa SuperX for the entire magical schedule. Super X, it's you. Your favorite music from around the globe. Chin Radio 97.9. This is uh, Chin in Ottawa 97.9. The program is uh, ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, heard each and every Thursday at noon with Ernie Tennis and uh, each and every week, always interesting guests. And today, certainly... Uh, no exception, Dr. Victor Shepard, who is uh, a professor of theology at Tyndale Seminary at, uh, in Toronto School of Theology, University of Toronto, who's taken the time to drive all the way to Ottawa to share some time with us here, and oh, it's wonderful that yeah, you're able to, uh, to pay us another visit, uh, Victor. It's, it's, it's good to see you again. Uh, we wanted to get into uh, uh, different aspects of... Uh, I wanted to ask this question before I, I turn it over to you, but you often hear the term... Uh, I found religion. I found God. I didn't know he was ever lost. Did you? <laughs> no. God has never been lost. As a matter of fact, human... We're the ones who are lost. Exactly. Human, human beings, of course, are not God-seekers. We think we're God-seekers, but of course, profoundly to be a God-seeker, you would have to know what it was that you were looking for. If you knew what you were looking for, you would also know when to stop looking. 
when that is when you'd found it. We are God fleers. When we think we're seeking God, in fact, we're fleeing God, and God overtakes us, runs on ahead of us, overtakes us, turns us around to face him, and um, precisely when we think we've been seeking God, we learn in that instant that we have been fleeing God and are now found by him. In other words, it's far more profound to be found by God than it is to be seeking God. There you go. It's far more profound to be known than it is to know. The youngster's walking through a darkened cellar, and she's going through the the five-year-old girl's walking through the cellar with her uh, father, say, and she's frightened. And she tightens her grip on her father's hand, and the youngster thinks that the her security is is vested in the strength of her grip on her dad's hand. What's the, what's the strength of a five-year-old? When all the while, her security is really the strength of her father's grip on her. Now, it's far more important to be gripped than it is to grip. It's far more important to be known than it is to know. It's far more important to be found than it is to seek. Once we are found of God, found by God, then we can fulfill that commandment of God in Psalm 27, Seek ye my face, seek me. We can only profoundly seek God as we are found by God. So when you say, um, you know, know, I I learned instead of searching for a meaning, the meaning's in the search. You talk about grip. Well, you know, people can move into griping, right? You can gripe instead of grip, It's all the right? difference of one P. One P. Now, if you're, people gripe a lot. I mean, it's, life is full of griping and complaining, you know, they they say a good complainer, you tell them to write down what he what he should be grateful for, he complains the list is too long, eventually, right? So, for gripers who then feel vulnerable, if you're griping, you must feel vulnerable about something. What is the notion, idea of vulnerability play into our human condition in this topic? I think we have to understand what uh, vulnerable, vulnerability profoundly is and isn't. I mentioned a minute ago that forgiveness never means that we have rendered ourselves a doormat. Do it to me again. Forgiveness never means we've rendered ourselves a doormat. In the same way, there's a kind of vulnerability which is little more than self-victimization or advertisement of self-victimization. The God who, who acts definitively according to Christian understanding in the cross is the God who announces that there is no limit to his vulnerability. I want to come back, Ernie, to the question of power, control. And we often speak of God as omnipotent. Well, that means all-powerful. What does that mean? Paul Bunyan raised to the nth degree? Omnipotence meaning sheer power, power unqualified, power unmodified, power without any other consideration. That's exactly what Scripture means by the evil one. Now, omnipotence doesn't mean power without modification raised to the nth degree. Such a God we could never worship, never worship. If power means the capacity to achieve purpose and God does this to the cross, then omnipotence with respect to the cross means that there is no limit to God's vulnerability. The resurrection of Jesus means that there is no limit to the effectiveness of God's vulnerability. Therefore, we had better understand omnipotence to mean no limit to the effectiveness of God's vulnerability. Once we understand that, we will alter what we expect the church's mission to be, what we expect to do ourselves, and what we expect of other people. 
The church at its worst is a church that coerces. And the church will coerce whenever it confuses its witness with, with success. Witness is the responsibility of the community of faith. Effectiveness or, the, or success is entirely God's responsibility. And as soon as the church makes that confusion, the church persecutes. Uh, so then I remember what you said two or three years ago, which is a big problem even today, is the notion that these institutions, maybe for political purposes, maybe for abusive, needs to convert people. Conversion, in terms of history of all religions, has been a problem. Has it not the idea that people can convert? Then you didn't say that the people can't convert anybody or shouldn't try to. It's part of coercion. I have no capacity to convert anybody. My responsibility is to bear witness to that truth which has apprehended me. What happens after that is out of my hands. Now, very often, the church has found it difficult to leave in God's hands what should be left in God's hands. Taking it out of God's hands and arrogating it to itself, the church attempts to render its own witness some kind of success. And as soon as it does that, it thinks that its responsibility is to convert people. Only the Spirit of God can convert people to anything. As soon as the church loses sight of this, it becomes coercive. And there's all this damage in our human history. Now, you, when you mentioned the word omnipotent, I remember well, you go back philosophy. First year philosophy um, professor talked about omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. Now, I'll never forget those three words. And I'm trying to remember what was meant by those others. It's almost like a tripod. It's like a three-legged chair. When one leg is broken, it falls. Now, you've mentioned omnipotent. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but it just came to me now. Are those the two other adjectives that still are used today in theological terms about omnipresent and omniscience? What do they mean? Omnipresence means, of course, that God is immense. There is no uh, corner of the creation from which God is absent. Omnipresent means that God is all present. As as my students are challenged by um, my articulation of what we mean by omnipotence, doesn't simply mean that God is all powerful in the conventional sense of all coercive. They're also challenged by omniscience. Does God know everything? Well, surely God knows everything. They will say, or he isn't God? My reply is, God knows everything that's knowable. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> now, now that's a little that's a little bit, bit different. God is God knows everything that's knowable. Is there then a dimension to the future which might still be future to God? I have no difficulty with that. Many of them do. At the same time, the omniscience of God has not been the, the omniscience of God misunderstood has not been that problem in world occurrence that the omnipotence of God misunderstood has been. I mean, we're, if we misunderstand omnipotence, we're going to go out and slay people in God's name. Yes. If we misunderstand omniscience, we'll likely let them live. Well, when we um, in the couple of minutes we have left, like, I know in the in the in the Quran in the Surah, there's a Surah that says, if you're approached with peace, you must respond with peace. And uh, Professor Galgan was here. He said that's what you should approach people with. And at my wedding, I quoted sir that that God knows everything before you know it. You can make your own decisions, but the consequences I already know. But you make your own decisions. It's not uh, you don't relinquish that. What never. So in terms of a vision for uh, what individuals can do in their own lives with this, what. What would you project as a as a hope or a vision for individuals and for the human family, what people can take with them? Since all Christian theology ought to be read and understood through the lens of the cross, 
which, as I've said, has to do with the effectiveness of God's vulnerability. As a Christian myself, that's where I want to begin, and that's what I want to characterize my demeanor. I'm a Reformation scholar, and our dear old German friend Martin Luther is dear to me. And Martin Luther developed what he called the theology of the cross as opposed to a theology of glory. Theology of glory is a, as a kind of ecclesiastical strutting, a triumphalism, where the, where the church has the capacity to coerce and bludgeons people. Theology of the cross is what we've talked about for the past hour on this radio program. Luther understood the theology of the cross profoundly in his head. When it came to the Jewish people, however... He became coercive when he found them supposedly recalcitrant. He felt that a church purified in doctrine and in morals would find the Jewish people streaming into it. In faithfulness to their covenant, they insisted on remaining loyal to the faith of their uh, foreparents. Luther at that point turned nasty. What he had in his head on this issue hadn't quite penetrated to his heart. The challenge for me on this whole topic of today is to ensure that my theological understanding is lived, is fleshed out day by day as I meet people who disagree with me. Well, the true education is example, and you are, Dr. Victor Shepard, a great example. Again, Dr. Shepard, thank you for uh, spending the time with us. And uh, if someone wanted to reach you again, uh, your website is? www.victorshepard.on.ca interesting uh, if you, uh, you pick up a, an American coin and you read, In God We Trust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that speaks uh, volumes, I think. Thirty, thank you so much. Quickly, next week on your program. The, the um, Canadian Ethnocultural Council is hosting a great event in Canada with multicultural groups and youth and um, adults uh, conference at St. Paul. We'll do a live show with Anna Chiappa, the executive director. It's going to be a great, uh, great show. And Great you're sponsor. Doing it live from St. We're going to do it live, indeed. Perfect. I look forward to that, and we invite you to stay with us on Chin Radio tomorrow at noon hour. Dialogue with diversity, Doctor Case Gannon. That's right. And um, you, when you said in God we trust, is a sign that in all others pay cash. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. <laughs>